Welcome to What We Started EDM, where we talk with producers, DJs, managers, labels, bunch of creators, and really anyone with experience in the EDM industry. I'm your host, Ted, and I talk EDM. Today, we speak with Tash, an LA-based artist with over a decade of success in the music industry. His tracks consistently get over a million streams, with one track, titled Sophia's Stream, surpassing over 9 million streams on Spotify alone. Lately, Tash has taken on an educational role, sharing his expertise both through his YouTube channel titled Tash Teaches and in-person sessions at Icon Collective here in Los Angeles. In this episode, we talk about the importance of having a community, taking responsibility for your own success, and the benefits of working with people that have honed their craft. Tash is a kind, genuine artist with so much to offer. He has truly inspired me in this episode. You do not want to miss this. later on and yeah then but i just want to really talk about how you got into music in the first place like you grew up in mallorca mm-hmm. did you have any musical background there uh, in your family or anything not really but my uh, my parents both loved listening to music yeah my dad had like a very strange eclectic taste in music where he'd play some sort of like finnish children's song and, yeah. and then he loved music from kenya and he loved mm. A strange modern hip hop song, and he'd he'd walk around with, particularly in his later life, he'd walk around with his iPad, just like playing songs, saying, "Have you heard this? Have you heard that?" And it was a it's a very like sweet ignorance mm-hmm. in how much he loved music, but he he didn't really he didn't play, or he never really had much of like a, an interest in in learning more about how to perform or play music, but he just knew that it made him feel good. Mm-hmm. And he saw no distinction between music from this part of the world and music from that part of the world, and he was very kind of like. Check out this, check out that. Yeah. And then my mum always just, she, she also was not musical in the sense of performing, but she always demonstrated to me like how music can make you feel. And she mm. would play like a lot of music in the car that was just like really uplifting and beautiful. Yes. And she would play like, um, well, we used to listen to a lot of music together in the car and to, particularly on the school run, because when I grew up in Spain, it was like a, an hour, 45 minutes to an hour either way to school driving so we would either listen with like one earbud of the iPod mm-hmm. while we were driving or I had CDs and stuff. But she, she would love listening to like whatever kind of rock bands and hip hop yeah. and pop punk I was into. But she listened to a lot of great kind of like uplifting stuff like Chaka Khan and, mm-hmm. and she loved Whitney Houston and all that kind oh, of stuff. Yeah. So she'd play like a lot of really good, <clears throat> like mm-hmm. big music. Yeah. But yeah, neither of them were ever super performy in that sense. But they always encouraged when I was like, "Oh, I want to play drums," mm-hmm. or "I want to play bass or guitar." They 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 were always very encouraging of that. Mm. They never pushed you away. No, pursuing music. And they also never pushed me to it. You know, I mm. I know a lot of people who were like, "Oh man, I'm just getting back into piano because when I was a kid, I had to go and take these lessons." Mm. And yeah. and my parents were never like, you know, even after I'd got a bass guitar, they were never like, "You better be playing that all the mm. time." It was just a thing that they were excited to see me want to do. And, yeah, it meant that I think having that kind of, well, yeah, if you want a flute, let's get a flute. You Mm -hmm. want a saxophone, let's get a saxophone. It was like, it led to this very kind of, similar to my dad's approach to listening to music. It was like, oh, you can play anything. You can can just play around. You don't need to, you don't need to practice and get to grade eight on anything. It's just play, have fun, you know? What do you want? Oh, you want a xylophone? Yeah. (laughs) Which is cool, yeah. Wait, how do you feel about that parenting style versus, you know, some parents are very like, you need to learn this, you need to be very good, you need to dedicate your time to it, but rather than 
than that, just letting the child do what they want, see what they're interested in, and flexibility. And I don't. Yeah, I would definitely lean more towards that as as a projected future parenting style. I do think that there's like a certain level of like. Yeah, I'm not going to, like, listen to the child's whim on the fact that they want to go and get, like, a face tattoo at yeah. 14 or yeah. 15 or something. You know, I think there's there's limits. There's, like, a, mm-hmm. there's a sort of greyish area where upon which... Mm, and then there's a sort of black and white section that probably, you know, at a certain point you need to exercise some sort of parental control based off of the fact that you've been around a little bit longer in this world. Mm-hmm. But in terms of, like, what we think they should do to grow, of, oh, you need to do this, or you need to be good at maths, or whatever... That kind of shit, I think, is detrimental to a child growing in its own natural environment. And if I often thought as well that, you know, there's, there's two sides to every person. There's the side of them that wants to analyse and categorise and theorise. And there's the side of them that wants to paint and dance and sing and all that jazz. And they are, like, sort of fundamentally at odds with each other, so we're told by society. You know, people either are mathematical or they're musical, you know. But I think one of the main reasons why that is is because as a kid you do well on a maths test at being six years old, and so your parents go, oh, he's into maths. So they push you in the direction of the thing that you show like an early proclivity to, and then that means that what's important that could also be grown sort of dwindles as, you know, you don't get to play the piano because you're off to math camp. Mm -hmm. Similarly, there's like kids out there who maybe didn't do too well on a maths exam, and so they're pushed into fine arts, and Mm -hmm. they love painting, and they show a really great uh, like natural skill for it because of the fact that's what their parents send them to do and that's what they tell them they're good at and they're told this story. But then they get to later life and they, you know, want to be a painter or an artist or a musician like me and you're like, fuck, you actually do need to know how to pay your taxes and you need to have yeah. a certain you need to have a certain balance in your you know, right and left side of your brain. So it would probably be in the interest of a child early on, not to push them in either direction, but to encourage uh, both you know, both both sides of their development. Mm-hmm. Like if you see an interest that they are showing, encourage it, but don't push mm. it. Yeah, yeah, very true. And if they feel like they're not interested in it anymore, I don't think necessarily it's a good idea to get into the habit of spending thousands of dollars every couple of weeks to like mm. buy the latest whim. Oh, I want to be a film designer or whatever. Mm. Get them a brand new laptop. But at the same time, yeah. if they don't want to do it, let them fuck off. You know, let them let them give up, and they may come back to it of their own accord. But mm. learning a small amount of one thing. And throwing it away, I found, not throwing it away, but, you know, moving on because it no longer serves, that comes with you. It's not as if the things that you learn from a cooking course can't be then fed into music or, Mm -hmm. you know, the books that you read on history. They help you. You're learning the the art of learning Mm -hmm. and you're you're practicing the art of practicing. Mm -hmm. And so that's just important, whatever it is you're doing. So onwards, kids, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, that's awesome, man. I have been thinking more about how I wanted to raise my kids, and that, I think, is just a good way to, to go about it. You know? Fuck yeah. Yeah. Awesome, man. So I want to know more about like how you got started in making music, though. You said you played the drums? I did, yeah. yeah. My, my sort of earliest musical memory was that I really wanted a drum kit when I was mm-hmm. you know, about tall enough that I, you could kick me across, across the room. Yeah. And... Uh, I think I had a plastic and paper-skinned drum kit when I was, like, three or something. You know, like a a kid's toy. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of pictures of me playing it and stuff, and I looked so happy. But I didn't actually get a proper drum kit until maybe I was 14, 15. Mm -hmm. Because we always lived in places where either we couldn't have one yet or whatever. I I finally got it when we lived in the countryside. 
and there was just no neighbours for miles and I had my drum kit in the laundry room which was this little separate outhouse and I would go and just beat the shit out of it and like yeah, write my favourite band's names on the drum skins mm-hmm. I'd put like you know Simple Plan and System of a Down and all that good stuff but um, yeah making music like playing music i.e. just you know playing guitar and playing bass and stuff that started I think a lot earlier probably when I was like 10 or 11 mm-hmm. but I just used to play chords, you know, or I would, I would play da 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 da, and that's all I'd really do. But I used to like doing it, mm-hmm. but there was never really. I wasn't great necessarily in those days at feeling what I was doing, other than sort of just doing stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, some of my other friends at the time, like I remember just thinking, like, "Fuck, how did they do that?" Like one of my good friends, Matt, music producer Cassie, if you know him, K A A K A A S I. He's a fantastic producer, but he, in those early days, like, he would just play shit on the guitar that he hadn't been taught how to do. Mm-hmm. You know, there was this thing where it's like, well, how can you do a thing that you don't know how to do yet? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I'm most interested in now is, like, that form of improvising, that form of, like, being on your edge to the point where you can surprise yourself. Yes. He would do that all the time. And I would just go, dum, dum, dum. Um, so I used to, like, play instruments for my early teens into my late teens. But it wasn't until I started recording songs that I was like, oh, this is, this is fun. And yes. in the early days of recording, I used to use Audacity, yes, which yes. you just can't really do anything on. No. But, I, you know, I'd record a guitar take. I'd just literally plug my guitar. I had a jack from the guitar that became like a headphone jack. And I'd plug it into my mum's old work computer. When there was microphone input and speaker input, like, mm. on a laptop. Um, and I used to just, like, record these silly little riffs and mm. stuff. And I had no metronome, so it would be completely out of time, but mm. felt really good. And then I used to go through a phase once I got a microphone of my girlfriend at the time. She loved yeah. all of these songs, and we'd listen to them on our iPods. And, mm. and I, I did covers of them. And I made this sort of, like, covers album EP thing of all of the songs that we loved listening to together. Oh. And so that was fun, playing with acoustic guitar and doing chords and trying to come up with a melody and then sing it and stuff. But um, it wasn't really until shortly before, I suppose you guys would call it, like, high school, like yeah. year 12 and 13, yeah. like just before you go to university or mm-hmm. college or whatever, I just had had enough of the idea of wasting my time at school and doing, mm-hmm. like, homework. Mm-hmm. And so in those days, I really liked things that, weren't homework Mm -hmm. and one of those it turned out to be was using reason oh that was your first dog yeah Yeah. reason was my first door with the intention of sounding just like dead mouse that was my dream was to sound and be dead mouse Mm -hmm. and dead mouse particularly in an era just before he did the whole kind of like electro dubstep kind of sound it was when it was Mm -hmm. this like really tasteful progressive house Mm -hmm. you know like faxing berlin and that track with cascade I forget what it's called, but oh, I fucking loved that. Yes. And so I used to just make these, like, it would be like 16th note gated pluck sounds, like, dun, 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 like chords that mm-hmm. would change. And they, oh, I loved making music like that. Um, and then that, throughout then those final couple of years before going to university, I just started playing with Logic and then eventually Ableton. Yeah. And I remember first seeing Ableton in those days and going, like, oh, yikes, that's horrible looking. Mm-hmm. What, a, what an ugly, weird way of working. And mm-hmm. You know, years on, I, I do still very much love Ableton. <laughs> yeah, there's so much you can do with Ableton. <laughs> really, yeah. Uh-huh. Awesome, man. And so you started using Reason, and then you ended up learning Logic and Ableton too. How did you get to the point where you were actually putting your music out there mm. and promoting it and wanting people to hear it rather than just yourself? I guess 
when I first started finishing songs and finishing like dance music songs or electronic songs, I was at boarding school and I'd gone for year 12 and 13 just before going to university and in my boarding house there was a couple of other people who used to make music like rappers and mm. there wasn't really producers so much but we used to just like show each other music and mm. there was a number of people who liked hearing what I was making you know so I would finish a song and I would send it to their Blackberry mm. and we would all listen to we would all listen to each other's songs on our Blackberries mm. <laughs> and uh, you'd have like the file on your phone and you'd listen to it with no bass or whatever but yeah. that was really fun and it was it was nice making music as a sort of means to, to get over the fact that basically you're in a little prison at boarding school. It was, I went there on my own accord. I decided I needed to go to a bigger country. Like I needed to leave the tiny island of Mallorca and go to the mainland of England for a boarding school situation. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time just making music because it was sort of an escape. Mm-hmm. And I think it wasn't until I finished that and went to... I then decided at the end of those two years at school that... I didn't particularly want to go to university for something difficult, you know, and like, not difficult, but I didn't want to go and do any more of the whole kind of writing boring essays and stuff. Yes. And I was like, well, I've been making music, like, non-stop now for a couple of years. Why don't I go and do music production? Yeah, they and have so, that at university? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. I went and got a degree in sound engineering and music production, mm-hmm. which, like, was... A perfect avenue to go and focus just on music. Yeah. But in the end, I ended up having a 13% attendance rating mm. because it <laughs> still wasn't... Like, it wasn't making music. It was learning about talking about making music. Mm. It was about, here are all the things that you would need to do to start a career. And I'm like, no, I want to start a career. Yeah. And so I made a SoundCloud account. And in the early days, I, um, I don't know why or where it came from, but I felt as though it would be more efficient, it would be easier... And it would perhaps be more fun to market myself as not myself. Mm. And so instead of it being like, hi, I'm Alex Christopherson, like, this is my music. I yeah. thought, well, why don't I create a sort of alter ego? Mm. And so I created this character called Cassie Fitzgerald. Yeah. And he was a, a man from Meke, Senegal. Okay. I was from Senegal. Yeah. I just had to remember the, the town name. And it was Meke, M-E-K-H-E, with yeah. accents on the E's. And so I made this SoundCloud account as being this mysterious guy from Senegal. And uh, when I would talk to people, I would talk as if I was from Senegal. So I would try and make like (laughs) grammatical errors that were specific to sounding. It was a very strange time. Um, But yeah, I started doing that for a while. And I created this account where I uploaded a lot of the songs that I'd finished towards the end of school. Mm -hmm. And I started making more what at the time was called post-dubstep. Mm. and uh, Future Garage and post-dubstep. And it, it wasn't dubstep. It was, it was more kind of like Bondax, the early days of Disclosure, mm. XXYYXX, those mm. kind of... Jamie XX in those early mm. days. Yeah. Lots of Xs. Yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of people with Xs in their names. Um, but yeah, I started making certain, more of that music and started uploading it on SoundCloud. And eventually, my buddy Cassie... Matt, he, I helped him start his music career and helped him yeah. finish off some songs. And he was like, I need a name. And I was like, why don't you call yourself Cassie? Yeah, so we took, already. Yeah, we took the first name of who I was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And then I stopped being this Senegalese man. <laughs> and I and then started becoming a whole host of different girls. Mm. And I, I was all of my ex-girlfriends. <laughs> 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 so, <laughs> yeah, 
it was yeah. a strange time. So all yeah. of my artwork then became like my, my teenage girlfriends. And so as to make it so that it was very clearly not the, not the same person, mm. I put a black bar across their eyes, mm. made everything black yeah. and white. And it was, it was very chic and people seemed to really like that. So I kept doing that for a number of years. Mm. And that led to some hilarious consequences of people thinking I'm a girl, like mm. booking me in Belgium to come and DJ. And, <laughs> and I'm like, hello, <laughs> it's me. Yeah. Male Tash. Male Tash. <laughs> uh, so, in the early days of SoundCloud, how did you end up promoting your work? Or did you just put it out there and it ended up doing well? In those early days, like, actually, side note before I even get into okay. that, but Prince, for example, everyone knows Prince. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows Talking Heads. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone, everyone knows a, a large disclosure, you know, yes. in all of these different fields. Everyone knows these large breakthrough acts. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we forget the fact that they didn't just rise on their own. They rose from a scene. They rose from a melting pot or a community of people who were all not necessarily working together to become successful, but working together to create like a sort of family or like a specific message that it's like, yeah, we we approve this approach to creativity or whatever. And um, I think those early days of SoundCloud... We were we we all started. Me and my friends, we all started in this what I would call the golden age of SoundCloud and the, mm. the golden age of YouTube as well. And I think we're genuinely past what allowed me to get my success when I it, my the success that I developed so easily early on. Mm. I don't think it's possible these days the way that I did it. You yes. would need to go through TikTok, you know, mm. or whatever's next. Yeah. I I may even not even be on the cutting edge to even tell you what's yeah. on it. But I think that you can't do it the way that we did it anymore because there's just not the same interest Mm. in community on platforms like YouTube and SoundCloud. Mm. And so in those early days, me and a whole host of friends, we lived in a town called Guildford. And we sort of made a bit of like a a fame for Mm. Guildford because we were all making this electronic music and a lot of us went to this one university, the Academy of Contemporary Music. Mm. And then a lot of us didn't go there, but they would all come to Guildford. And so we had this like this mandem, this posse, Mm. this gang of of musicians. And because we would all work together and repost each other's music and play at the same shows. And if one of us got booked, we would take the other one. And Mm. we had this like ecosystem that was thriving. Mm. And also in those early days, YouTube um, was just starting with their YouTube channels of like music selector channels. Mm. So um, people maybe uploaded music in the past, but Things like Majestic Casual or The Sound You Need or Eat and Messy. Yeah. Those kind of things were just starting. Mm-hmm. And the people who were behind them, say like Adam Engel from Eat and Messy or Olivier from Sound You Need, these people were just kids, mm-hmm. you know, or yeah. Nick from Majestic Casual. They weren't like super successful business owners yet running YouTube channels that are charging a decent amount of money for things. They were just kids starting a YouTube channel, just yes. like we were kids starting making music. Mm-hmm. And so when, in those early days, we would make music and they were fans of ours and they liked the songs we were uploading on SoundCloud and reposting of each other and commenting and mm-hmm. being just silly twats. And like we, we had a lot of stupid humor behind it all. We created this sort of little ecosystem that then led to these YouTube channels being like, oh, well, we want to use your music to grow our brand. Yes. And so we had these sort of unspoken deals where anytime we would make a new song, it would just be uploaded on these channels that were slowly but surely burgeoning to great numbers. Mm. 
And a lot of these uh, YouTube channels then in those early days were like, oh, well, we could throw events as well. You know, we're just starting out with events. So they do one in London and then they would do one in Belgium and yeah. we would play them all. Yeah. And it meant that we were, you know, we were in our little ecosystem of playing all over Europe with these YouTube channels as backers. Mm -hmm. And we were growing with the YouTube channels and the YouTube channels were growing with us. But yeah, that and then also just, I believe all of the music I made up until about five or six years in, I just gave away for free. Like I never mm -hmm. sold anything. And it was yeah. sort of like a, it's like a stamp that I was like, I refuse to sell my music. Mm -hmm. And so everything I would put up, I would say that you can have it for free. You just got to follow me. Mm -hmm. And that's how I have 60,000 followers on SoundCloud. Is yes. yeah. hasn't really grown much in the last five years. But in those early days, it was like, mm -hmm. I've got all the, the figures of watching it grow. And it's like the most fantastic organic reach that it's yeah, so exciting yeah, yeah it really was <laughs> and in those days as well you used to get i think on soundcloud now it tells you how many plays you've had in the last 24 hours and or seven days in the last 30 days yes yeah. and the statistics used to be way better on soundcloud yeah. i don't know what it is with modern software and these modern websites but their approach to making things simple and minimal and whatever and just removing like real great analytics and depth mm -hmm. of function for God knows what reason, I don't know, maybe yeah. so they can charge you more for like a pro version, I don't know, whatever, but they don't even do that with SoundCloud. But it used to have really great statistics. You could also just hit refresh and you'd see the number go up. Yeah, and so we would all just like hang out and smoke joints in our university <laughs> house and we'd just be like, Whoa! <laughs> we'd like release a remix or release a song, yeah. you know, and we'd all just like fucking huddle and just mm -hmm. be so excited by each other's growth. Yes. And I think that that's something that in some ways I've missed in p certain parts of my career as I've gotten older and as I've mm -hmm. sort of isolated myself on a mountain is that it's really nice to make music with people but it's also mm -hmm. really nice not necessarily just to make it with them but to have community of people where you're looking out for each other and you're excited mm -hmm. for each other's success and you can just have that feeling of like even if you're not growing or you don't feel like you're growing by extension you are mm -hmm. you know by extension good things are happening to us yes and if you just get too caught up in this mentality of it's like, oh, I have to, I have to, I have to. It's, it's a fucking lonely road in this, especially this day and age. Mm. So you think being a part of the community in general, of other mm. people doing the same thing, yeah. is super important? 100%. Because yeah. I think also, you know, there's this, there's this feeling of jealousy is the wrong word. It's not mm. that. It's almost like it's our primal... It's our primal, uh, in, our, in our gang of musicians, it was all just boys. You know, we were all just, there was all just boys and men and stuff. Well, we weren't men, we were boys. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, there was this almost kind of like, this primal need to like, to work, to do stuff mm. and to like get going. And it meant that we like, we, none of us ever slacked because we were all just so excited by this like yeah. need to do stuff. And I think community in many ways gives you that, that feeling of drive because you're always inspired by what your friends are doing. Mm -hmm. And when they're not inspired, they can be inspired by what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I just started my, uh, my online community, my, my Tash tribe thing. Yeah, and it's already yeah. really cool because I've, we've got over 100 people in the tribe. And I can already see how nice it is to have a sort of developing family of mm -hmm. people of all ages. You know, we've got people who are 70 plus in there wow. who have been yeah. making music since computers first started, mm -hmm. you know, and they can tell me shit about music production that I'm like, damn, what? you know, <laughs> what you used to do with floppy disks is nuts. Mm -hmm. 
But um, to have to have these people who have a name and a face and who are there, you know, they're part of it. It's not just a YouTube comment that comes and goes. It's not just a number. It's not just a streaming number. It's like people who I can engage with and, and offer my 10 plus years of, of uh, experience yes. to help them and they can help me. It's like it's this thriving feeling mm-hmm. of there being like a family. And I think it's just so important if you are to want to do any creative endeavor to find other people who love doing the same thing yes. and to utilize uh, the very natural com- competition gene in us, mm-hmm. not to try and be better than them, but to try and all be better together. Yes. And yeah, yes. that's super important. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And can you tell me more about the tribe that you created and how do people join and just more about it in general? So for a long, long, long time, I'd been saying I wanted to make, I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to make Mm, tutorial videos. And uh, it was kind of like one of those things, you know, where you almost get so, so, you almost get so well associated with the desire to want to do it that you don't do it. And it wasn't until then COVID happened that then I make most of my money from gigs or had been making most of my money from gigs. So when there was no gigs anymore, it was like, Right, okay, well, how, yeah. how do you make money as a musician that can't tour? And I was like, well, I've got one thing that being locked in my house can't take away from me, and that is experience. Mm-hmm. And so I was very lucky where I was stuck in COVID times, was in this beautiful countryside part of England yeah. with my girlfriend at the time. And I would every morning I would go out and I would drag a desk, a chair, a camera, and a, and a, a, a tripod out to the forest and a really, really long extension lead. Mm-hmm. And I would go and just sit in the forest and I would talk about creativity and making music. And around the same time, I started learning this piece of software, Bitwig, and did a certification course to become one of the, one of the chosen few on the planet that yeah. were deemed fit to teach it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I started making these videos and I was like, oh, this, this is actually really fun, being able to, to, share, to share this knowledge. And it meant that anything new that I learned, it wasn't this thing that it's like, cool, how do I use this? It's like, cool, how do I use this and how do I teach this? Mm. Straight away, how do I like, how do I share my excitement for new concepts? Yeah. And in some ways, it's that community thing again. It's that feeling of it's like, oh, well, I'm pushed to grow because of the fact that I want to provide more for my community. And anyways, I had this YouTube channel running for ages and it wasn't until just two or three months ago that I finally was like, okay, that's enough. I have to make a course now. I have to make an online community. And I signed up with a thing called Mighty Networks that's allowed me to create my own there's like there's nowhere that you can click off of the website. Yeah. You know, once you're there, it's like we've got all the content and the the content like the create the creativity contests and like mm-hmm. the chat and the community page. But there's no like it's not like a Facebook group where you can click to the home page. It's once you're in Tash Tribe, you're there. And it's, yeah. it means that you have this very like um I suppose like a what would you call it? I can't think of the word when you're immersive. Mm. It's like you're immersed in what it is that we're doing there, which is really fun. And yeah, so we've had people, lots of the people from the YouTube community. I'm still posting the videos on YouTube, but you can then go from the YouTube to the Tash Tribe for the free downloads. Of I started being like, okay, well, every time I teach something, why don't I just give the project file away? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, if I start making a really cool song, people should be able to continue working on it because I'm probably not always going to finish all of the things. Mm-hmm. As well as if I make like sample packs, like, I want to give them to people. And so people can join the tribe to get all of these fun things that I make Mm. and, uh, and also do these cool live streams and stuff. So Mm -hmm. I've been doing, I did 
I just do these random workshops. Recently, I did one on uh, creating music with AI, which yeah, is my latest yeah. passion, yeah. which, uh, believe it or not, for somebody so into like the, the magic and the human aspect of music, like I've mm-hmm. found real depth in AI lately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, the, the community's been really fun for that. Awesome, man. Is there like a Discord or something where they can talk with each other as well? Yeah, yeah. I've also made a Discord, mm. but um, yeah, there's like a chat room. There's like a chat. There's a chat room on the site? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so people can be chatting, but then if you want to like post a thing, then there's like various thread pages and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's really cool because um, it's like it's like a, its own little social media platform where I, yeah, sure, I want to keep you here and I want yeah, to steal your attention yeah. and I want to point that attention back at your personal growth and music. Yes. You know, and like, uh, rather than be fine trying to sell you, obviously I want to sell you things, yeah. but I want to sell you things. To, <laughs> I want to sell you lots of things. Yeah. But ultimately I want those things to help you make music and feel freer. Yes. But still buy them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome, man. So you have been producing for 10 plus years that we talked about and releasing music. And you already talked about how much the industry and how you've become successful has changed. Mm. We're not in the SoundCloud age anymore. But you still managed to have around like 250,000 monthly listeners on Spotify. Have you found like specific things that have helped you maintain your popularity? I would say the number one is just putting out a lot of music. Mm-hmm. And it would help if that if you're happy with that music yeah. as well. I'm, I'm not necess- There's a caveat. Don't just yeah. put out music for the hell of it. Yeah. If you can respect the music you've made and you can love it and you can, I suppose, respect yourself enough to make music that you love mm-hmm. uh, and to stand mm-hmm. by it even if it feels as though maybe it's not what the community... It's not what the society wants or whatever yes. it's never been an interest of mine to make something that's hot mm. I've always wanted to make things that I like and ultimately feel like a, a step on my evolution or a step along the, the, the adventuring journey of making music and stuff yes. and so uh, put out a lot of music continuously yeah. all the time mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that is also the answer because maybe, maybe, just, maybe people don't like your music but that's no reason not to put out a lot of stuff. Yeah. Like maybe you're making just like really quite difficult niche music. Mm-hmm. I, I I doubt a lot of people are doing that. But if you're making like really aggressive ear bleeding noise, like you're making noise, yes. yeah. th- just put out a lot of it. You know, mm-hmm. eventually there will be your niche of people that will just start listening to it. Mm-hmm. I hope. But um, I also say that with all of the understanding that I I I got to there through a golden age that I don't think is possible nowadays in, mm. in the same way. And so I had a lot of those fans carry over from um, a far more poppy beginning. Mm. A lot of the things I was doing in the early days, like I, I had sort of the stamp of approval of these like poppier parts of music. Yes. I did official remixes for like John Newman and uh, Naughty Boy and, mm. and Rufus. I did yeah, a, a yeah. remix of one of those and Zoo. And so all of those kind of things really helped sort of garner an element of credibility that I think allowed me over the last however many years Mm -hmm. seven years eight years since those days to just sort of do whatever the fuck I wanted Mm -hmm. but I think yeah it's it's also crucial to make sure that you um you're always growing and if if you I can't say from personal experience what happens if you try and make a song that sounds like your last big hit yeah 
but I wouldn't recommend that mm. because, you know, even if that's a hit, if, if that becomes your approach to success is trying to make what was successful, then you're not, pu- you're not moving forward. You're, you're focusing on algorithmics and data. Mm. And also the things that get big these days oftentimes aren't always because they're a great song, but it's because of algorithmic data trending. And yes. if something is popular, it's likely that it feels or sounds or looks or tastes similar to something else that was popular. Mm-hmm. And so I, f- I think that sometimes you can probably be on the cutting edge and you won't be appreciated for it yet. Mm. Yeah, yeah. 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 And that's that's cool too. So just put out a lot of music all the time. Mm-hmm. Awesome, man. You have very similar artwork on all of your recent music. Is that artwork you created or can you tell me more about the artwork in general? Just so that? those are the, the artwork was actually a Czech artist and the yeah. early days it was uh, an illustrator. Um, I haven't actually worked with him in a while mm-hmm. um, because I went through this sort of little phase of not making much music. Yes. But amazingly, I, you know, I, I paid him first and foremost to make me a, a logo. And yep. he drew the, the classic cowboy horse situation. Yes. And uh, I loved it so much, I was like, okay, well, I, I want artworks. Mm-hmm. So I had these amazing artworks. And um, now I've got to a point where I have enough of those artworks where I've just fed them into a, into a neural network. Mm-hmm. And now I just generate them based off of... No way. Yeah, that... so, <laughs> like, I have the art style, yes. and I know what the background color is. To, for mid-journey, the background color is called Dutch white, okay. which the hex code is E-D-D-A-B-E. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> and now I will generate it with some nonsense text that needs to be removed and stuff, but it means that now I have a number of releases coming out the rest of this year of uh, Friends... Like they're releasing songs on the label, and instead of instead of having to like uh, instead of having to get someone to draw them now, I just ask them, "What is it that you want? What do you want as the picture?" Yeah. And so I've just taken all of the previous artworks of Glitter Cowboy and I fed them in there so that like it's been trained on what I want. Yeah. And I say like uh, a couple walking through uh, Lisbon in the rain. Yes. And yeah. um, <laughs> what's cool is obviously you do m- multiple generations of specific facets of it. So now I now it means that I have more control. Because in the past, you know, I would get somebody else to do the drawings. And if they weren't quite right, then I'd have to either tell him I wanted changes or whatever. And like, the whole spirit of Glitter Cowboy and the whole spirit, I think, of the Tash Project is that I wanted to do it all myself. Yes, <laughs> yes. Which isn't necessarily very good and I wouldn't recommend that. However, I do really like having control back in being able to decide art-wise what I want for the label. Mm-hmm. And so it's really fun now having the creative endeavor of the fact that when somebody asks me that they would like a picture of a couple in the rain walking through Sintra in Portugal and they want a tree, Midjourney won't just generate that. You know, it's, it's probably not going to be smart to be able to do that. Also, yeah. some of the other tools, they're, they're not going to be able to do just that. So instead, I'll then um, generate different parts of it. So I'll do like mm. Sintra and then I'll yeah. do a couple. And then I'll do a tree. And then I just like piece them together in Photoshop. Yeah. And it's so fun. And if you need to remove or get rid of anything to alter them, then you've got the generative fill in the new Photoshop beta where you can just say, make the tree an oak tree. Mm. And it'll just do it. So, I mean, AI is, I think, a very exciting precipice that we're (laughs) perhaps about to fall off of. (laughs) Definitely. And like you said, being able to do everything yourself. Yeah. And it's like, it's so empowering Mm. to not have to wait for people. And to not have to find excuses for why you can't do it now. It's yeah. like, oh, well, I don't have the money to pay a graphic designer. Or, oh, I'd love to get this song mixed, but I, have it, I don't know the good mixer. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, 
why why would you need to wait anymore? Yeah. When ultimately, like, if somebody does, if you pay somebody five hundred dollars or you pay them five thousand dollars to do something, what matters is whether you like what they've done. Mm. And if you have the chance to sit there and offer yourself options to go, which one of these do I like the most? Mm-hmm. That means that you're developing a far, I don't know, more intimate relationship with the things that you're putting out into the world because you're saying, I'm happy with this. I'm happy with yes. this. I'm happy with this. As opposed to in some ways being bound by the kind of societal rule of the fact that you can't ask for too many revisions or mm-hmm. too many edits or yeah. God forbid, you know, oh, I can't afford to pay that person that. Well, just do it yourself then. Yes. And if you can't yet do it yourself, learn to. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know how to learn to, learn how to learn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's so many resources now. You can learn anything. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, I want to learn more about Glitter Cowboy, specifically your label. And also, you have put music out on other labels before as well, like Andrina Deep. How did that happen first? And then I want to hear more about how do you decide to make your own label? And what, is, what has that done for you? Mm. So the other labels, yes. particularly Anjuna Deep, um, I would say that in the early part of my career, a lot of the depression I felt about music, this was, I'd say, after those first couple of goldmine years of the YouTube and the SoundCloud days. I then left England and I moved to Barcelona. And in those days, I smoked a lot of weed in my boxer shorts, getting up at 2 p.m. And I, you know, side note, I do believe that a large amount of depression is... It's a natural reaction to the bad choices you're making for yourself. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily, it's definitely not a chemical imbalance. But anyways, I was making terrible choices for myself Mm -hmm. and as such paying the price of experiencing depression. Um, So these these months of being, or these years of feeling very sad, I wasn't finishing anything. And instead I was just making like whips, you know, works Mm -hmm. in progress. I was making these ideas and I had management at the time and I put a lot on them, the fact that they needed to get me these releases on these big labels and blah, 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 blah. blah. And big labels don't want to sign a whip. You know, they don't want a work in progress. They want a song. And in fact, they want a few of them. And so, you know, there was this sort of indignance that I felt that it was like, how dare they not see my true genius? And I went through the, you know, this real phase of, I suppose, dealing with a bit of, a bit of arrogance that I mm. developed through having had such great success so early on that it was like, well, I expect for the hallways to just open for my, my heartfelt music and stuff. Yeah. And ultimately, I wasn't finishing things. And at the same time, the things that I did finish, if I, we sent them to labels, you know, and the gatekeepers of my success, the things I needed to do to grow, to be able to get on with my life, I needed yeah. a label to accept me. They would come back with notes and they would say, oh, we don't like this because of X, Y, Z, or we think you should change this. And there was a part of me that obviously wanted to grow and find success, but there was a part of me that was like, how fucking dare you tell me what yeah. I need to do to my art? I don't want to fucking work with you then. And that, that, <laughs> that perhaps like impetuous, uh, impetuousness has led, I think, to one day my mom was like, why don't you just start your own label? Why don't you just... Yeah. And my mom's been a huge supporter and she's, she's a very business-minded hum, uh, human and she's, yeah. um, she's always had such a great, um, a great intuitive understanding of like what should be done and things. So she was like, you should start a label. And so I actually launched Glitter Cowboy on her birthday. No uh, way. Yeah, so the, yeah. First, the first album or the first five-track EP came out on her birthday and mm-hmm. in honour of this genius woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Glitter Cowboy really just served as a... The, the tool that would allow me to go through putting my lack of growth on things outside of myself back into my own hands. It was like, well, if you 
If you're going to keep saying that it's Virgin's fault or Defected's fault, that you're, I'm not where I want to be, well, okay, well, now it is your fault if you're not where you want to be. <laughs> yes. Because if, you, if, if you're not putting out music, it's not because somebody else is telling you that they won't. It's because you're not putting out music. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. back to one of the things I said about one of the best ways to grow is to put out a lot of music. I've put out over 100 songs on Glitter Cowboy wow. because I can. And also I can sit down at my computer and I can finish a song and without even getting up, without having to call anyone, I can export it as a WAV, make some fucking artwork and I can upload it then and there to be scheduled to release in two weeks time if I want. And that feeling of liberation and freedom is paramount, I think, for any kind of artist that wants to shake their fist. Like, well, shake your fist at yourself now. Yeah. And yeah, so Glitter Cowboy has also been a really fun way of being able to um, just try out different things. So I've put out house songs, a large, a large percentage of my catalogue is house music, but mm-hmm. a song like Don't Walk Ahead is like a gospel yeah. song. Yeah. And that was something that I just wanted to do because I love gospel. Mm-hmm. And in the, at the time, my management said, well, you can't put that out. And I, mm-hmm. and I was like, well, why not? And they said, because it would be confusing. You know, your fan base won't know what to think of you. And proves them right. Like, the song almost has two million plays. And people have specifically told me, I love that you make music that sounds like Sophia's theme and don't walk ahead. Mm -hmm. It's like, thank you. Those are my fans. The people who understand, who understand, you know, that Mm -hmm. you don't have to be fucking pigeonholed into a little box. Particularly not by, usually an A&R in a suit, not even in a suit anymore. Now it's probably some sort of, like, man bun. Maybe we're not even yeah. that. Maybe that's even more 2012. But some person who yeah. probably had an inclination to be a musician but didn't really pursue it um, and instead now works on sort of pigeonholing other people's music and mm. trying to, like, neatly sell it to a mm. consumer. You know, I, I'm, I'm, there's a real need for labels. There's a real need for A&R, and a lot of people have great taste. But I think the commercialization and the selling of music... And treating music as a product as opposed mm-hmm. to an expression is, is a problem. Mm-hmm. And you can free yourself massively when you realize the fact that the thing that you're making isn't a product. Mm-hmm. And you can still sell your, ex- your expressions, but if you go in trying to make music as if it's a product, it's like, okay, well, what's, what's the niche in the market that's needed based off of these analytical trends? I don't know. It's not fulfilling. Yeah. You know, oh, well, Chammy is big at the moment. Maybe yeah. I should make some music like that. If you want to, and it calls your heart to do so, then that's one thing. But if you're like, oh, well, I, I, want to, I want to grow my circumstances to be more successful, therefore I should do this, or God forbid the label told me to do this, I should mm. do that, then, yeah. I don't know, you're selling yourself short. Mm. You need authenticity. Yeah. yeah. And authenticity boils down to what do you fucking love? Yes. What is it yeah. that sets your heart on fire? Do that. Mm. Yeah. And if you don't absolutely feel that way, then don't do it. Mm. Do something else. You talked about something that I want to talk about as well, uh, where there will be this pressure to stick to one style of music, one like your brand, pretty mm. much, and that can benefit you in that people know what to expect from you, but also then maybe you don't really grow as much and you don't really explore these other areas. And you specifically, I mean, I listen to your music from ten years ago on SoundCloud versus now; it's so different. What do you think about that? Just trying new th- styles and. Is that something that is important to you? I'd say so. I mean, I don't necessarily... Like, I say I try new styles. Like, you haven't ever seen me put out a drum and bass no, EP but... or... 
I, I play around sometimes with like trying to make it and stuff, yeah. but one of the main reasons why I haven't done it is because it just doesn't excite me as much. Um, but definitely like world music of, of all varieties of sort of world folk music and disco and folk music and uh, like as in Americana folk music with acoustic guitars and finger picking and all that and soft jazz and and soft rock and yacht rock all of these things I fucking love all of these genres of music and I see them in the same I suppose the same way that my dad does music which is that they're all just influences they're all just things that you like therefore when I sit down to make music, there's no conscious desire to grow or to change. It's just, I think, a natural evolution over time as the things that you're ingesting and the things that you're learning more about and learning to love more, they just naturally find their way to filter through you. And I make music because I have to, not because I have to because I've got a gun to my head, but because like, I wouldn't feel, I wouldn't feel at, at home on this world if I wasn't doing that. Yeah. And so I think having to make music as a constant outlet as well as then being a human being that grows and learns and lets go of things and you know i'm i went through a phase of uh, i didn't put out that much music during that phase it was actually during the smoking weed in my boxer shorts till 2 p.m wake up call in barcelona phase but i was into a lot of very dark music like stefan yeah. bodzin and uh tale of us and like i really loved that sound and like i guess that was 20 2014 2015 I loved that and um and so everything I was making at the time I wanted to elicit this feeling of like doom and gloom and darkness yeah. and I've now arrived at a point where I don't want to do that anymore it's not because I think it's bad or wrong or whatever I'm not going to be going to any afterlife parties mm. because it just doesn't set my heart on fire I've arrived now at a point through just living my life that I, I understand for me that it's about liberating and creating a sense of freedom and connection and unity and joy and love and it seems as though the palette of sort of disco and funk and yeah. classic Chicago house and stuff best fits for that mm -hmm. but I don't know I've also gone through phases of really loving like Romanian minimal music mm -hmm. and the interplay of all of these things comes through just through doing what you do you know mm -hmm. and yeah, I think also those early days of SoundCloud, I did go through a slight phase towards the end of that where I, was, I had become known for creating these rather more pop-style arrangements. Yes. I was making like three-minute, three 40 seconds, four-minute songs that were quite neat. Mm -hmm. You know, they were neat, and I was making them for the SoundCloud YouTube days. Yes. And it wasn't until coming to California and going to a festival called Desert Hearts that I started mm -hmm. being like, oh, songs can be seven minutes. Yes, and when a yeah. song can be seven minutes, it requires a completely different approach to choices mm -hmm. and also to, to subtlety and to patience and stuff. And I started having this conflict where I was like, well, how I'm known for being this thing and now I want to explore this thing. And I started like building up this idea in my head that my fans weren't letting me evolve mm -hmm. and that like, oh, but I can't do that because they expect this of me. And mm -hmm. it wasn't until Glitter Cowboy. Yeah. And being you know free of any kind of outside intervention into my creative process that i was like oh wait <laughs> i can do whatever the fuck i want yeah. and some people will like it some people will love it and also some people won't like it some people will hate it and that will happen all the time whatever it is that you do whether you make the most beautiful piece of music that a hundred people tell you like ah, oh, i give my firstborn child to listen to it again yeah. there's a million people out there who hate what you do and so if any reason why you're not growing or changing or exploring or experimenting is because of other people, like, know that 
whatever people you're imagining are holding you back, you could imagine a different group that are encouraging you. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever group that you think want you to stay like this, there's another group out there that would love if you'd become a jazz musician. Mm-hmm. You know, like whatever you do, there's just this fluid, organic nature of that you'll find your way, you'll find some sort of sense of direction in there, and maybe you'll turn again, and that's fine. Eventually you'll die as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's good to remember. Um, I want to talk to you about collabing with people. You said you live with someone that you've produced with before. Yeah, I'd say my biggest collaborator, Jackson yeah. England. Yeah. How did you create these relationships in the first place and start to make music with these people? Well, Jackson, his sister is a musician called Annabelle England. Okay. They're a fantastic musical family. And in the early days of my, my Los Angeles visits, mm-hmm. um, my manager connected me up with Warner, who she was signed to. And Jackson used to write with Annabelle. He was a writing partner of hers. And we uh, had a session together in Santa Monica at the, yeah. the Warner Studios. I actually was Interscope which I believe was a subset of Warner. Um, But anyways, we had a great first session and then Interscope paid for us to have a session in England for a week. And so they flew those guys over there and we rented, they they rented this amazing house for us. They rented an amazing studio called The Dairy in Brixton. And I lived in Barcelona at the time. And so they paid for them them and me to fly to Barcelona and had this great studio session. And fortunately, none of that music ever came out. A lot of good good music just sat in the archives of unreleased Annabelle England stuff that yeah. I wish we could release. Um, but that led to a real deepening of a relationship with her brother Jackson, and he's a just incredibly talented human being who um, I feel like I could make a song, you know, in five minutes with just a bunch of noises and stuff mm-hmm. recorded. You give him like one or two words, he will write the most beautiful song yeah. easy. It's like it yeah. just comes out of him. It's like he's reading it off of some invisible teleprompter. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's been a really natural relationship where, you know, what sort of organic ease I have with production, he has with songwriting and singing. And it's like, let's do a harmony. And he's like, yeah, that's the one. Let's do another one. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, there's a real joy, I think, is particularly if you've spent a lot of time honing your craft at the point where you are, arguably very good at the technical side of it like mm-hmm. i know all of the shortcuts and that's that's i'll be boastful of the fact that i've spent years of my life not hanging out with my friends and mm-hmm. missing uh probably out on a large part of weekend fun yeah. by just spending all my time fucking becoming a better music producer and that's not necessarily even just the the, the creative aesthetic aspect of it it's i mean tech technical learning how to be able to not think how to be able to control my software in such a way as the fact that I can get out of my way. Working with people who have done that for their craft as well is one of the best things you can do mm-hmm. um, for, for creating just real magic. Yeah. Is if, if you're a great producer but you, you struggle with singing, I'm not saying that you shouldn't work with people who are just starting out, but find someone who is as good at their craft as you are yours and you will move mountains together. Yes. And you, so working with Jackson has been that, where all of our greatest hits, like Heart of Gold and Walk in the Room and Addiction, all of these songs, they were easy. Mm-hmm. They're some of my favorite songs I've ever made, and they were easy. They weren't a struggle. They came out of the ether because we both just fucking love what we do and we're good at it. Yes. Um, but in terms of collaboration, I would say it's, it's very important to collaborate if you want to 
if you want to grow and find where you need to grow, collaborate. Because if you're just always working on your own and you're always doing stuff on your own, you'll never come up against your limitations. And it's oftentimes also working with other people that you encounter things where you're like, oh, that's fucking awesome. Yeah. I want to learn to do that. There are certain people who, Lyle, a, a friend of mine who plays keys, mm-hmm. um, he played on Heart of God. He's played on a lot of my stuff as well, actually. Just being with him, just collaborating with him, made me want to play piano more. Mm. It made me want to, like, it, it wasn't just made me want to, but it unlocked in me the reserve of energy required to learn to play mm. piano more. And similarly, working with Jackson made me want to learn to write lyrics more. And while I haven't really got to a point where I do that as much, like seeing these things, collaboration is a mirror of what it is that you love, what it is that you won't stand for and all that kind of stuff. And also in a very kind of just data way, if you have X amount of monthly listeners and somebody else has X amounts of monthly listeners and you collaborate, you combine those monthly listeners. And so if you do a lot of collaborations with a lot of people... You create these networks and it goes back to those communities again. It's like if you can collaborate with a person on their track and then they will be on your track or even remix swaps. Mm. Remix, instead of asking for a fee from someone, ask for a remix swap. So you remix theirs, they remix yours. That means that you introduce each other to your respective fan bases. Mm. And uh, yeah, super fun. Also collaborating with people who can play an instrument as opposed to, I'm not saying that most producers can't play instruments but there's a certain depth to a playing of an instrument that comes with not knowing how to produce yeah like to the point where i think producers we have this issue which is that you hear something and you instantly want to capture it Mm -hmm. you want to put it down you want to make a song with it you want to share it with the world people who just play and they don't produce they don't have that drive they they play because it feels good they're sending it out into the universe these frequencies and they're not there trying to like fucking oh we yeah. need we need to keep yeah. that and producers come along and they're like that 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 play that again and they go play what again and you're like that amazing thing that you just played yeah. it was clearly the it was the hook it's like what do you mean like i'm just just playing so collaborating with human vsts you know human music generators i have a couple of human music generator vst friends who just go like go and they just play, and you go, stop it. And they go, come on, I'm yeah. glad you're recording. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, super cool. Awesome, man. You talked about how there are a lot of weekends when you missed out on hanging out with friends, for example. Uh, do you believe that there is, like, a balance you need to have with music production? Like, can you be all in on music and not really see your friends? <laughs> or do you need to have some kind of friend time? It's probably quite, Im- <laughs> it's probably quite important to, uh, to, uh, to find some balance, I think. Yeah. There have definitely been times in my life where I was giving myself the experience of depression Mm. by not getting up and leaving my computer. And clearly making music wasn't working that day. I wasn't even making music. Clearly sitting and staring at a computer screen and typing Mm. and clicking with the intention of feeling something wasn't working that day. Like my addictive tendency to just sit in front of a computer and hope that Ableton or Bitwig will save my day. Mm. No. Those days you need to get up, you need to go for a walk in nature, or you need to go and cook a lavish meal for yourself, or hang out with some friends, or anything, but make music. Mm. And I think the, 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 no, the, the sort of the notification bell that comes up with when it's probably a good idea to take a break is, does it feel good to make music right now? Mm. Do you yeah. feel trapped 
in making music right now? Do you feel anxious about making music right now? Probably not a good time to be doing it then, mm. but it's probably indicating that you're lacking something else. Mm. And while I do think that if you, if you really want to become a great music producer, you need to put a large amount of time and effort into it, and probably you should perhaps not go out drinking every night with your friends, and perhaps no. you should divert a large portion of your attention towards doing so, uh, there's, there is a balance where I, I can see in myself, uh, I've done myself damage by not taking a break, whether that was like a break for an hour, a day, a week, or a weekend, even a month. Sometimes you need to just like take a step back. Yeah. And uh, yeah, if you find yourself constantly missing out on your life, not to make music, but to feel, fr- to feel frustrated by music, and that's indicating of the fact that probably you need to find a rebalance there. Yeah. But final final disclaimer on okay. that: if you find yourself like missing out on your life, as in like skipping birthday parties and that mm, shit, yeah. to make music and to feel like a deep spiritual connection with it, it's being a monk, baby. Like that's fine, that's good. But don't be missing out on your life to feel frustrated that you can't grow. If you are going to miss out on those kind of things, make it a conscious decision to commune with that spirit of music in a deeply growth and spiritual minded way mm. and then you're good because yeah. the music is nourishing you anyway yeah don't do it just to do it yeah you need to. and definitely don't do it because you think that fuck i need to pay rent therefore i need to be a music producer and i need to no, no. if that's the case though I, I have never had to do that because somehow just making music has always funded my way and i've always believed that it could and so i would always be able to get a gig or teach some sort of uh, student that paid a large fee or whatever but if 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 you need to get a side job mm-hmm. but don't get to the point where you're relying on music to the point where you're depressed by your life because yeah. music ain't paying and then you become a person who's like oh the music industry sucks and it's like well yeah of course it does yeah. <laughs> of course it does what are you talking about that's yeah. why you have to pave your own way but to get to a point where you're reliant on a thing that you say sucks like mm, no find reliance on another shitty industry honestly my last question is you have so much that you recently started like Tash Tribe and Go to Cowboy you have a lot of time ahead of you what do you see for like the next five to ten years of you and your music and your label and everything Mm. I think one of the the most exciting things that I can see at some point on the horizon is creating a place and just a, it's not a cult, maybe a bit of a cult, but <laughs> creating a place, a sort of retreat center of sorts where there's a, a, a lot of studios, a lot of great instruments set up, a lot of vintage synths and stuff. Mm-hmm. And people can come and they can experience something, something inside themselves, something together that will allow us to do great things musically. And uh, my girlfriend, she's a, a medicine woman of sorts, and she, mm-hmm. she does a lot of... Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff in that space. Okay. And so I think in the future, it would be great to create a place together, definitely sort of cowboy themed, yes. with a lot of land where we can be far away from the, far away from the hubbub of city life mm-hmm. and to be able to provide a sort of creative sanctuary for people to come and to run retreats and to have interesting guests coming and talking about spirituality and liberty and creativity and unity and all the good things that end in tea. Yes. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd really like to do that. Similarly, I'd also really like to be uh, eventually hosting sort of 
live courses with people. The the courses I've put up so far on Tash Tribe have been I pre-recorded and I put it up and people go through it at their own their own pace. But one of the courses that I'm I'm working on launching soon is um maybe it's going to be 6 weeks, I'm not sure it necessarily yet on the length of it, but it will be a group course where uh, over the space of 6 to 8 weeks um I help people unlock in themselves a freedom to improvise. And so it will be targeted specifically at people who maybe have played guitar for years but they find themselves playing the same old chord progression every time or they sit down at a piano and they just play chopsticks or maybe they learnt to play piano as a youth and they can play Chopin and all that stuff but their fingers play only things they've learnt. And so I, I'm writing right now this course um, which I'm going to be called Play With Heart and the point of it is instead of Instead of thinking that there's techniques you have to learn, it's sort of unlearning those parts of yourself that prevent you from being able to surprise and wow yourself musically constantly. Mm. And that is improvisation. That's the expression that exists just beyond uh, what is expected of your hands. Yeah. And a lot of the time, that, that doesn't come through thinking what you want to play. That comes mm. through just feeling what is being played. Mm. So that's uh, definitely something I'm excited about doing. And also I'd like to do an album. I'd yes. like to do a proper album. One of the, the sort of album-based projects I'm working on right now is using only AI. Mm. So I'm generating... In, a lot of the things that I've done in music, I've sampled recordings from my iPhones or um, I've got ambiences from the BBC archives to different places. I'm now generating samples from text yeah. to music. And that's super cool because it means that the aesthetics that I have in mind when I would describe it to somebody. Oh, so it's a jungle, tiki, 1950s, lush string, tribal yeah. disco house. I can use those word stamps through like natural language recognition with AI to generate sounds that sound like what I'm imagining. Mm. And that means that I'm not limited by what sample packs people have created or what things I have in my immediate vicinity to record. And I've been making some really fucking cool music where... Every single sound in it. I'm not generating a song and there you go, one wham, bam, thank you, thank you, ma'am. Like, that's the finished yes. song. It's you generate a piece of music and then there's software that can split it into stems. So maybe I just want the kick out of, like, a generation. Maybe I just want the vocal out of another one. I'm now splitting these things and taking all of these layers and basically creating these collages of AI-generated samples. Mm -hmm. But it all started from text. So yes. it's like I'm using text to create, to generate sounds, to split them up. And it's very exciting. I think this, this is what I'm most thrilled about at the moment are the possibilities of these text-to-music generators. Mm -hmm. So you'll see an album soon, or at least an EP, yeah, of music yeah. that has been made exclusively. I finished the first song, and it's amazing. Oh, yeah. It's really, really cool. That's so exciting, man. Yeah. <laughs> you're yeah. constantly growing. To like, these new tools come up and you learning how to use them, and it's going really well, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. it's really fun. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. To Thank you, here. man. <laughs> I want you to take some time to talk about everything you're working on, what you want to promote. Hell yeah. And that's right now. Yeah, nice. Well, uh, I'll talk to the camera then. Yeah. Um, well, I suppose my, my, uh, my most exciting thing, as we've mentioned a couple of times today, is the Tash Tribe community, mm. which you can join for $9.99 a month or $99.99 for the year. And that will give you access to free project downloads, free sample packs, presets, 
um, live streams that I do. I do a live stream every week, whether that's a sort of track breakdown, feedback listening sessions, just random workshop ideas. Um, that's probably, I'd say, the thing that I'm most keen on growing at the moment. I'm actually in the midst right now, after I go home from this interview, I'm going to continue working on my next course. Uh, the first course I did was Bitwig Grid 101, which is a sort of grid is the, the modular environment, similar to Max for Live or Reactor by Native Instruments. It's the modular environment of Bitwig. So slightly more niche there. But I'm currently creating a Bitwig 101 course, which is my, you've never used Bitwig before. Here's a course on how to use it. And I haven't probably even mentioned what Bitwig is. It's, <laughs> it's, it's the DAW that I use, Bitwig Studio, created by some of the early coders of Ableton that left with some creative differences about how much and how quickly they wanted to innovate and change the world of music production. I truly think it's the future. If you haven't heard of it yet, you will at a certain point in the future. And um, yeah, it's, it's a wild piece of software that I'm very proud to be a part of, um, the, the community of. And so, yeah, watch this space for more related content on that. But yeah, I'd say, I'd say that's about it, really. Perfect. Well, thanks again, man. Yeah, thank yeah, you, man. Yeah, this is so really joyous. Fun. Yeah, yeah. about you. Thanks for listening to the podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. Just search What We Started EDM. I'm your host, Ted, and I talk EDM.